Hello, and welcome to the ASHI podcast. My name is Gonzalo Berman, and I serve as the Editor-in-Chief of Antimicrobial Stewardship and Healthcare Epidemiology. With the ASHI podcast, we hope to share content that is relevant, novel, thought-provoking, and consistent with the diversity of perspectives that we seek with ASHI. A special thanks goes out to the editorial team and, of course, to Shea for their ongoing support. We hope you will enjoy this podcast. Welcome everyone to the Antimicrobial Stewardship and Healthcare Epidemiology Podcast. I'm your host for today, Dr. Priya Nori, the Deputy Editor of ASHI. Today is Monday, March 6, 2023, a few weeks before the highly anticipated Shea Spring Conference. We are joined today by Dr. Judy Guzman-Cotrill, an invited contributor to the ASHI's Women in Epidemiology Special Section. Her essay published late in 2022 was one of our most read and shared articles. Since a major theme of this special section is mentorship, Dr. Guzman-Cotrill has invited several of her mentors mentioned in the article to join us as guests today. Doctors Trish Pearl, Louise Dembry, Rekha Morthy, and Jane Siegel are all extremely well-known SHEA members with numerous leadership roles and professional contributions. Their work has inspired the popular Women in Epi, now Women in SHEA, meeting at the Spring Conference and serves as the inspiration for this special section of ASHI. Welcome, everyone. Can you each briefly introduce yourselves and your current professional roles, starting with you, Judy? Sure. Hi, I'm a professor of pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Disease at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland. I'm a clinical ID doc, and I'm also the owner of an infection prevention consultancy, which is called Infection Prevention Consulting of Oregon, or IPCO. I established it back in 2015, and in that role, I do a lot of healthcare epi work with my state public health HAI program. Great. Thank you. Dr. Siegel, do you mind going next? Hello, thank you very much for including me in this session. So I'm Dr. Jane Siegel. My training is in pediatric infectious diseases. However, very early in my career, I developed a major interest in healthcare epidemiology. And after being on faculty at UT Southwestern Medical Center and the Children's Medical Center in Dallas for many years in achieving the role of professor, I am now working at the California Department of Public Health in the HII branch and enjoying it and really learn a lot about how public health and clinical epi meet. Thank you. Dr. Murthy, can you go next? So I'm currently the professor of medicine in the infectious diseases division at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles and the professor of clinical medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine in L.A., I spent the uh, 26 years in leadership roles at Cedars-Sinai, um, first as hospital epidemiologist for 20 years, and about six years in the executive roles of associate and acting chief medical officer. I've recently retired from my full-time administrative roles at Cedars-Sinai, though I remain active and involved with academic activities, as well as teaching, research, and clinical care. I spend the bulk of my time as an independent consultant, where I focus on leveraging my knowledge and expertise at the intersection of business and science and serving as a subject matter expert on these topics of infection prevention, hospital epidemiology, antibiotic stewardship, and policy for public health businesses and uh, independent colleges and nonprofit organizations. 
I've particularly been enjoying the ability to actually leverage all of the my knowledge and expertise from the different aspects of my career experiences in these areas and really looking forward to having this conversation with other people or other women that I admire greatly. Wonderful. Thank you. Dr. Pearl, over to you. Hi. Thanks again for having me. And it's good to see old friends. So I am currently a professor of medicine at UT Southwestern in Dallas in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Geographic Medicine. I do clinical infectious diseases in adults. And I was formerly the hospital epidemiologist for Johns Hopkins Hospital and then the healthcare epidemiologist for their health system. And then moved into an administrative role where I was the chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases and Geographic Medicine. And currently, I'm actually helping to build a school of public health that we're starting at UT Southwestern, which has been a phenomenally interesting experience, you know, especially in these times in being in Texas. So again, I'm happy to be here and excited to see you guys. Thank you so much. Dr. Dembry, over to you. Thank you for having me. I'm a professor of medicine, infectious diseases, and epidemiology at Yale University. Uh, I was director of infection prevention at Yale New Haven Hospital for 20 plus years or so. And then I went to the VA Connecticut healthcare system to direct the infection prevention uh, program there. I recently retired uh, at the end of December. I remain active in teaching. I have an MPH course teaching um, healthcare epidemiology, teaching at the medical school and a variety of other projects and here and there. And also I've told Shay that I'm available to help them if they need anything. So uh, that's what I'm up to right now. Fantastic. It's so wonderful to have you all. Uh, From this point forth, we're going to try our best to use our first names. So here goes. So To kick things off, I'd like to ask those who are attending Shea Spring, which is April 11th through 14th in Seattle, what are you most looking forward to about this upcoming meeting, which will be our second in-person meeting? Judy, would you like to start? Sure. Well, of course, one of my favorite things about the Shea Spring meeting is the manageable size of the meeting. It's substantially smaller than ID week. So this means I'm not finding myself constantly running from one building to the next in order to catch the next session. I'm really looking forward to connecting with both old friends and new colleagues in um, infection prevention, hospital epi, and uh, antimicrobial stewardship. It's always such a great learning environment and great fun at the same time. So it really does feel like the best of both worlds. So I really can't wait to see everybody and uh, to be updated on everything related to infection prevention. What about you, Dr. Morthy? I know you're going to be there in several official capacities. What are you most looking forward to? Yeah, thank you. Building on Judy's comments, I think it's the Shea Spring is an opportunity to really um, have the ability to have two more in-depth, more intimate conversations across the spectrum of attendees. And I think in the capacity uh, that that I will be there, in the capacity in which I will be there uh, representing Shay as a board member, as well as serving as a mentor, really excited about kind of meeting not only um, old friends and new friends, but also really focusing on some of the highlights of what Shay has been able to accomplish in um, developing new leaders 
and fostering some of the uh, activities, particularly in the areas that Anoche is committed to with respect to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Hey, great. Thank you. So our next question, uh, I would like to ask both Jane and Judy, which is the fact that there are fewer pediatric epidemiologists in our society and in the field in general. What are the challenges unique to the smaller community that you feel the rest of us may not appreciate and that we have to kind of bring into the fold more? Um, Jane, would you like to start? So I think that I have been around long enough to remember when pediatrics wasn't really, pediatric infection control and epidemiology was not really recognized. And we had a small pediatric special interest group that was started by Joanne Harris uh, many years ago. And we met whenever there was an in-person meeting. And now that's evolved into the Pediatric Leadership Council. And I think for those of us who are in pediatrics, we need to get the word out and um, help people to see how they can uh, benefit. I think there have been research projects that people have collaborated on and just the collaboration to share experiences in um, pediatric infection control is really wonderful. Yeah, I think um, probably also one of the biggest challenges for us in pediatric infection prevention is the lack of evidence for so many aspects that we face daily in children's hospitals. There's still so many evidence gaps. And just a few examples are, you know, the best way to prevent viral HAIs in neonatal ICUs, the roles that parents and siblings play as visitors in children's hospitals, and even device-associated infections. We can't rely on adult prevention guidelines because it just doesn't directly translate to kids. So, you know, as pediatricians always say, children are not just small adults. And so I think that that remains to be a big challenge for us. The exciting thing right now is I feel like, as Jane said, you know, it's taken time, decades for this field to really realize that pediatrics is its own thing. So I'm currently the sole pediatrician on CDC HICPAC. And one of my roles is chairing in a really exciting work group where we're literally going from infection definition to definition throughout the entire NHSN manual. And we're rewriting all of the pediatric definitions so that they make sense. And they actually reflect what's going on clinically in children's hospitals. So I feel like as a pediatrician, it's really an exciting time to feel like people are finally taking us seriously and listening to our needs um, in infection prevention and stewardship. I'd like to add one more thing, if I could. As Judy said, there is we don't have the randomized controlled trials in children for many things that we have in adults. And one thing that I think has been helpful has been the Shea white papers when guidelines have been published, uh, which address implementation and acknowledge the fact that there may not be as much evidence as we would like, but this is an approach to implementation. And I think that's been very helpful in pediatrics. So now just shifting gears a little bit, the opening paragraph of Judy's essay describes in detail the training she pursued to immerse herself in hospital epi and infection prevention and control. She mentions options such as um, the Shea CDC certificate course, the Institute for Healthcare Improvements, HAI bundles, and just learning everything possible about NHSN reporting. Now, Drs. Pearl and Dembry, 
do you think that these courses and these like sort of requisite things that we all do, do they still hold up for the modern epidemiologist? And is there anything else that you feel like for this moment is just kind of a must? I would argue, yes. I, you know, I think that this is like any other sub-sub-specialty where you need to have the requisite knowledge to have the credibility. Um, and so I would not want to see any of us, you know, dilute that. I think what what we get and what we have to, to offer are, you know, analytic skills. And, you know, even though the science isn't perfect, we can take what's known and then translate that into action. So I, I think it's really important. For me, I got an MP, well, the equivalent of an MPH, I have an MSc and in epidemiology and biostatistics. And I think it really helped me get a place at the table. And I thought those skills were critical for talking to people, you know, at the time it was about definitions. We were arguing about definitions and, you know, my patient is sicker than your patient. And, you know, how, how do you really negotiate those kinds of discussions? So I think it's really important. And I think it's important that we acknowledge that we are sub-sub-specialists and that we have something to bring to the table that is extremely unique. And we need to to advertise that and be proud of it. Yeah, no, I would agree with Trish. I think those are the basics. They're still very relevant, um, excellent courses. I would add some practical experience and knowledge that people should try to access. One we've actually already touched on a little bit is the role of public health, in particular the HAI programs in each state really understanding how that interfaces with facilities, um, what the expectations are, what public health can do. And the other thing, since we're still in COVID-19, I guess maybe coming out of it, it's becoming more endemic than, um, pen, uh, than epidemic at this point, but it's uh, planning and responding to high consequence infections. This is really a reality for going forward. Some of us, you know, dabbled in it before. I mean, Trisha and I could talk about our experience at some point when we did SARS in Toronto in 2003 and how eye-opening that was. And most of us here did, you know, the 2009 H1N1 flu pandemic and we did Ebola preparedness. But those people who are starting out, they've kind of come in during the time of COVID, but a lot of preparedness went into that and experience. So I think it's important that people avail themselves of, of those opportunities. So if I could just add one thing, you know, Louise went and got an MBA. And I also think that that's a skill set that's really critical. I was, I've never been convinced that we needed an entire MPH. And I've always thought that the perfect degree might be a combination of an MPH with an MBA. But I think that's another skill set because you have to talk to the bean counters and you have to know how to neutralize their discussions. And another thing you get from doing an MBA, I just want to add, because we may talk about this later, is you get some more training, if you like, in leadership skills. And um, I came kind of late to the table with that. I wish I had done it sooner, but um, I think that's another plug for an MBA. That's critically important. Thank you both for your insights. 
So, uh, Judy, I want to pivot back to you and your prestigious Shea Mentor Scholar Award at ID Week 2022. And I just want to take a second to quote something uh, beautiful you wrote, which is, Now I see mentorship and sponsorship as my gifts to hand down to younger colleagues. When mentees feel successful, I feel successful too. So on that note, can you tell us about the LEAP Fellowship, how it ties in some of these themes that your colleagues mentioned, and what is your role in this? Thank you for um, for mentioning the award. That was very kind of you. Yeah, the LEAP Fellowship is really exciting. It's been around since 2019. Uh, it's co-sponsored by Shea, IDSA, and PIDS, the Pediatric Infectious Disease Society. And it stands for Leadership in Epidemiology, Antimicrobial Stewardship, and Public Health. It's a CDC-funded one-year fellowship that teaches early career ID docs how to collaborate with their public health HAI partners. And it's really focusing on the how. There's many different ways that myself and other ID physicians, um, including some here um, with us today, like uh, Reka, have figured out ways to stay doing clinical work, but also be part of the um, HAI program team at their at their health departments. So you know, and there's there are many other Shea members like like us who have figured out how to do this a successful what I call a, um, a hybrid career model. And what I mean by that is that we're clinical ID docs who also hold, con- hold contracts, um, paid contracts with public health programs. Back in 2017, uh, I highlighted this collaborative model in my Shea Spring Opening Plenary Lecture. And um, the CDC's DHQP really liked this model and liked hearing about the successes. And so two years later in 2019, the LEAP Fellowship was launched. We're basically teaching our fellows how to have one foot in the hospital and the other foot in public health, to be a bridge between clinicians and public health programs. So for the LEAP Fellowship, I serve as the curriculum director. And I tell you, it's just so fun to to work with these fellows and figure help them figure out what their passions are when it comes to public health and infection prevention or antibiotic stewardship and mentor them along during that year to help them hopefully figure out a way to be a hybrid at the end of their fellowship as well. I have the fortune of being on the steering committee for that. And I recall that the curriculum also does include topics such as financial independence, contract work, in uh, professional development topics that are sort of outside the traditional scope. Um, how do you feel that those have, um, why are those so important right now in this moment? Oh, gosh. I think it's really important because we need to find ways to attract more people to go into IT, to go into hospital and healthcare epi and stewardship. This goes along with what I've said actually in social media that um, the ID altruism bubble is about to burst. In fact, it's actually already burst. Um, you know, you look at the ID fellowship match rates for this year, they're terrible. And 44% of adult um, ID fellowship programs were unfilled, including some of the best programs in our country. And it was even worse in PEDS ID, where only 57% or 57% of programs were unfilled. And I think for decades, Healthcare systems have assumed that we ID docs will continue our service for terrible reimbursement because ID docs are so altruistic. We are. And, um, you know, we're here to serve everyone, not only in the public health sense, but so many of the infectious diseases 
of the patients that we manage are our most vulnerable populations. And, you know, of course, we don't do any procedures. So, and that's where financial compensation is solid in healthcare. So when I talk about that altruism bubble and why all of this is so important right now for the, for the LEAP fellows is to try to be, try to think outside of the box. And when I think of our field of ID, I think of it very similar to like a real estate bubble. And I think all of us in our cities have seen this happen where the prices of homes rise to these ridiculous levels. And then finally that bubble pops. And well, I think that that's happening in our, in our field where overworked and underpaid ID physicians, you know, we people have relied on our altruism and our altruism grew to this incredible need, this insurmountable need during the pandemic. And it's literally our fatal flaw. And now the altruism bubble has popped and people are like, how can I how can I do a job like this, even though we all know it's the best job in medicine <laughs> ID, but not be able to pay the bills, not be able to, you know, think about you know, being able to pay their loans. I mean, these are real questions that we get from medical students, residents, and fellows. And, you know, I think we need to rebrand ourselves and change fellowship curriculums and um, really figure out ways to make this um, not only academically and um, clinically such an exciting field to be in, but We've got to figure out ways to get paid better and figuring out ways to improve compensation is not greed. It's just fairness. You um, you give us a lot to think about. And as you always do in your um, musings on social media and just uh, speaking with you uh, in person, what do you all have to add to that? Do you agree? Do you what's your approach to kind of protecting yourself and sustaining yourself going forward? Well, I think everything Judy said is is spot on. I, and uh, I also think that you know, by nature, the altruism that calls many of us to the field that, that we've chosen is part of our DNA. And that's okay. Um, I, I think you know, it is a bubble. And I think to, bal- to balance that, it's important for us to be foster and make aware among our younger folks that those entering in the field and even those who are uh, early in mid-career to think about ways to at least provide ways in which to balance that altruism with really a sense of business acumen, understanding that the, not only healthcare is a business, but also shifts in healthcare, you know, financially and the pressures that are that are real. And I think we benefited as a field in healthcare epidemiology from the quality of focus in the you know first decade of the century, possibly from come to the second. But we're now seeing shifts into much more of a you know, balancing the quality or shifting of the pendulum um, from the quality focus to, in some cases, needing to be more lean, the evolution of health systems. So there are lots of opportunities, I think, within that to um, uh, convey the importance of healthcare epidemiology and infectious disease physicians uh, to contribute to the bottom line. And I think we've, you know, we sort of need to come out of these recent crises to formulate that into a more tactical, strategic way. And that's, I think, something we can do. Um, we can support SHA organization. Dr. Dembry, how did you have the foresight even before the current crises to pursue an MBA? And what did you see as the need at the time? So I pursued my MBA in 2007. 
So I had been in healthcare epi for about you know, 15 or more years at that point in time. And I, I was finding that it was really a challenge to um, be understood and valued by the administration. Uh, they really didn't understand what I did. They would see us as a cost center. It's kind of all the things that, you know, have just been said. And I felt um, that I needed to understand them better. I needed to be able to speak their language. I needed to be able to present things to them in a, in a package or a way that they're used to seeing it and not just my going and presenting it from a clinical perspective because they're not clinicians for the most part. They don't, that's not what they do. Uh, and, and they don't, you know, they mean well, but it's just not what they do and they don't understand it. So that was my main reason for doing that. And I also thought too, I, I, I did a general MBA because to the point that Reka just made, I think there's a lot we can learn from business and for infectious diseases, but particularly for hospital epi or healthcare epi. And the way that business approaches issues, we can, we can really adopt uh, or adapt some of those, those approaches. And so I found it very helpful. And I also thought it was really challenging to think outside of healthcare in ways that, you know, I hadn't done for 15 years. I and mean, you were so immersed in healthcare, we, we don't recognize always what goes on in the world around us and what we can get from that, glean from that and bring to our job. So that, that was a lot of why I went and did an MBA. I wish I'd thought about it sooner and done it sooner, but maybe that was the right time. Okay, so we know why we're all here today, specifically to embrace and celebrate the role of mentorship in our society. We know that mentorship is extremely important and sometimes difficult to find, especially for those from non-traditional backgrounds. Judy, to quote your article again, uh, so many uh, eloquent statements and pearls within. And so we encourage our readers to read immediately upon listening to this episode. While attending the Shea CDC training course 18 years ago, I distinctly remember an observation that left me uneasy. Only a handful of women were speakers, including Dr. Trish Pearl. I felt like a fish out of water, a Filipino female, a pediatrician with a DO behind my name. I left the meeting wondering if Shay represented me personally and professionally. So first, um, Dr. Siegel, can you tell us about the public health perspective and how we can, in terms of a professional society, be more inclusive of those voices and their unique struggles, especially lately? That is a very important question. And one lesson that I think we've all learned from the pandemic is the importance and the role of public health in uh, addressing large crises. And I would say as a pediatrician, my focus in recent years has been on long-term care. And I think of long-term care as kind of the last frontier for infection control. It first became obvious to me how important that was when dealing with antimicrobial resistance. And as a clinician, we really cannot deal with antimicrobial resistance just by looking at our antibiograms uh, in our facility. It's a regional phenomenon, and we need to have public health uh, to uh, bring facilities together. Uh, and there's so much uh, exchange of uh, 
patients and, and residents uh, amongst those. And I think that the long-term care facility um, population is are amongst our most vulnerable individuals uh, that we serve and have received maybe the least attention uh, to their well-being from an infection um, prevention and control standpoint. And that, I think, needs to change. And that is not likely to change with just a single facility or a single system. That is a national change that must occur. And I think public health plays a major role in that because public health uh, interacts across the spectrum of delivery of care. And I'd like to uh, just add one point about when we were talking about the training that's needed. Several years ago, I had the good fortune of being involved in um, creation of a skill set um, paper and that kind of listed out the skill sets that are needed to be a successful healthcare epidemiologist. And I think when you look at those skill sets, you see what kinds of training uh, you need, need to get. And I would certainly refer everyone to thinking about it in, in that way. And one other point I would make is that every state health department is different. So I practiced in Texas for most of my career, and now I'm in the California Department of Public Health. Very, very different public health organizations. And one really needs to learn what the capacity is and, and what the values are of the uh, healthcare of the state public health department in order to be able to take advantage of the health department for the things that you need to accomplish your goals. Dr. Zembri and, and Pearl, as original members of Shea's Women in Epi Committee, uh, again, now Women in Shea, how did this group first come together? What was the goal in terms of fulfilling unmet needs for mentorship and networking? Let's start, Trish. Since you pulled me in in 2014 and told me since I was going to be Shea president the following year, I had to get involved. Yeah, and this this really speaks to something that that Judy commented that at the time uh, there weren't a lot of networking opportunities, and a lot of us felt like we didn't really have any group to talk to or people who were in our shoes. And uh, so, for us, it was really just a safe space to actually talk about some of the challenges that we were facing. Uh, And it's grown from there. And so I think what that tells us is that there is a huge need and there are ongoing needs and those needs are going to evolve. But I think if anything, the legacy of that is that it, it just really ended up being for people who felt like they needed a space where they could talk safely about a lot of different things. And, you know, I think we be, we can begin with women, but there are other diversity issues that we have to start, you know, addressing, you know, beyond gender. And, you know, that's what it opened up. So, you know, as president of Shea, and even before when I was the chair of the annual planning committee, Louise can tell you my goal was really to diversify those those leadership groups. And I think that's what we have to keep on doing is diversifying, but also then giving people a space where they can grow. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that I've tried to mirror what I saw Trish do, which is to reach out to people where she saw potential and give them a chance um, to grow within Shay. And I would certainly say she did that for me since we're talking about mentoring and sponsoring. And I think that's something that um, women in Shay also allows. It's, it has ground. It's a place too where people who are relatively new to Shay or maybe kind of mid-career to be able to come together and talk about some issues and ask some of the questions we're talking about today. How do I get started? How do I grow in my career? What are the barriers that you um, had to deal with in your career? How did you overcome them? And also talking about some things that um, are not only necessarily career, but uh, just life things. And I think that's been very interesting in hearing people's stories. And I, I that's what I've really enjoyed, I think, the most um, in the Women in Shay is, is being able to come together and hear other people's stories and then feeling that not so alone in my, you know, career challenges and in personal life challenges. So I think that's something that um, it's nice to have seen it grow. And I'd like to see it continue to grow. And in preparing for this today, I was thinking there might even be a role for people. I'm going to put myself out there more senior since I recently retired. I have a little time on my hands. I'm very busy, but nevertheless, to, to say that, you know, we're here, reach out to us, we're happy to talk to people. I know it seems intimidating, but if we say we welcome that, please call, please email, hopefully that'll give a space for women to do that outside of the once a year women in Shai. Dasha Murthy, you are the chair of the Shea Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Committee. Um, can you share what the committee has planned in terms of expanding voices of those represented in Shea? Yes, well, I think before um, I, I speak to that, I, I think it's very relevant first to say, you know, just the conversation we've had on this call and on the podcast and hearing from everybody um, on, on the panel kind of highlights how far we've come, um, but also how far we still really need to go. And I want to just share my own personal experience, very similar to Judy's, uh, where been, I joined the field of uh, hospital epidemiology about 28 years ago. And for the first few years, I was you know, immersing myself in, in networking, learning, and um, you know, trying to reach out to other other individuals and join Shay. And um, I wanted to say both Trish and Louise had a role in. Uh, facilitating my ability to actually contribute to Shea in ways that I felt connected. Um, Trish invited me to a planning meeting uh, when it was in LA, a conference planning meeting, and Louise facilitated uh, when I expressed interest in joining the committee to join the, the publications committee. So I think these are examples where I think we hopefully have seen you know a lot of awareness in our work already in Shea to foster and mentor and provide uh, avenues for members who are interested and those who are um, who are sort of starting their careers. But to but to speak to specifically Shay's goals, um, Shay is uh, certainly committed to a um, strategic plan uh, built into the strategic plan. Um, specifically addressing diversity, equity, and inclusion. But the way I think it's it's been outlined in the Shea uh, strategic plan is really not a project. It's about specifically embedding uh, the principles of diversity and equity and inclusion uh, within all the volunteer structures of Shea 
and so that we can advance principles in the field of healthcare epi, antibiotic stewardship, and infection prevention. And if I had to just speak very simply about what are what the committee focused on in trying to support this direction, it really comes down to, I think, a few specific areas of work. One is um, really transparency and visibility. Something as simple as you know, seeing people on a on a uh, speaker panel or on a conference invitation or you know, uh, speakers uh, speakers at a conference and leadership committees. The, what the website looks like, ensuring that we're representing kind of all that we mean. So, secondly, really to define what we mean by diversity, equity, inclusion. Trish uh, alluded to some of this. It's gender is a part of it, but certainly. Um, there's a lot more besides race and ethnicity for our membership. Uh, it's really critical to also recognize the geography. We want to make sure there's representation across the areas um, that our members represent. Career level, if, um, you know, Louise has alluded to that, there are different, regardless of where you are in your career, there's opportunities to contribute. And the type of work setting, whether it's public health, uh, as James spoke about, adult and teens, I mean, there's, there's a fairly broad broad array. So I think there's, there's a tall order, but a very important one to make sure we as Shea kind of address, stand at our own feet in how we are visible to our membership and to outside agencies. Because if we want to be able to advocate not only for our organization, but for our field, it's a, I think it's important to, to represent that. The other major pillar, of course, for the work of DEI is to support our members in being able to, to reduce and address and eliminate health inequity in the communities that our members serve. So that ultimately is sort of another body of work that's going to really involve not only providing tools and skills, but also advancing some of the research agendas, working with partner organizations. And I think another uh, important area is how do we attract people to the field um, that we care so much about? And um, we can do that with folks who are in training now. Uh, Shay, many of our committees have already adopted, in, including trainees, whether they're uh, fellows in infectious diseases or healthcare epidemiology, but also working with other organizations, I think, is going to be the most important way to reach out, whether it's through public health or through other organizations, to try to identify people earlier in their training or even before they've committed to the field of medicine and healthcare epidemiology, just to provide insight into all the opportunities and options that are available to kind of pursue in their careers. So I think those are the, the main things, I, without getting into a lot of details, really the transparency. Access, I think, is a critical function. And I've talked about some of the ways I think it's important to make that work. Representation, communication. I mean, we need to be clear with our membership that, that Shea is committed and, and find every opportunity to communicate those and uh, those principles. And we've seen in this call examples of all of the leaders here speaking about how they have been doing this throughout their careers and ensuring that there's uh, inclusion and diversity in different ways. And the last thing I'll say is it's important to build in sustainment. We, this has to be the work that we do and the effort that we, that we're kind of trying to, um, put in place has to be model, have to be models that are able to be sustained and sustained and built upon. So it's not a one and done. Thank you. I would like to uh, layer onto this conversation the importance of Shea volunteer work. 
Now, this is an uncompensated responsibility, as we all know. We all do this for the love of the game, so to speak, but we cannot deny that this is extra time for folks outside of work or perhaps at night or on weekends. So that said, how do we convince our members to take this on? And what has it done specifically for you all in terms of your careers and your interpersonal relationships? Um, Judy, do you want to start? Sure. I think, you know, when I think about um, kind of the three pillars of being an academic uh, and having a faculty position, you know, we think about um, service, we think about education, and then we think about scholarly work like research. And all of the work that I've done with Shay, I have seen it as my way to do one, two, or all three of those pillars of my faculty work at a national level. So, um, you know, I don't really see it as extra work. I, I see it as, you know, once I, when I slowly moved up in terms of experience, leadership in Shay from assistant professor, associate to full professor, my roles changed within Shay from, you know, being a mentee to being a mentor to learning to teaching. So that's kind of how I've seen it. Yes, there's a lot of work to do, but, you know, many hands make for light work. So as long as you have a good committee, <laughs> I think we can get a lot done. And of course, you know, there's, I've made first colleagues, then long lasting friendships through Shay as well. So I believe there is enough work to go around and there are ever expanding volunteer opportunities for our members. But, um, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about lately is the fact that these are very short appointments and people rotate off very quickly. And if you've had the honor of speaking at one of these conferences, well, uh, the chances that you may be rotate back on the list of speakers may not uh, present itself anytime soon. So that said, uh, how can we make sure that the more senior members of our organization continue to be seen and heard and continue to have opportunities to contribute to the society. I thought a little bit about this, but I don't really have a solution. I think that it's maybe looking at the more senior members of the society and tapping into them when there's something that's really around experience that they can bring to the table. And it may not be the scientific talk, not that we can't do it, but we want to make room for others to do that. It's very important that they be seen that way to be able to grow their careers, develop their reputation. But there are other things that we can bring to the table that can benefit the rest of the society and members. So it's just one thing I kind of thought about. Some of us, I, I know I'll speak just for myself. I feel that I have stepped back from a fair amount of things in Shay in the last several years, as well as other things in my career, because I feel it's important to make room for more junior people and mid-career people, because if we don't move aside, there's no place for them to go. But that doesn't mean that we're gone in that we don't have something that we can a value that we can help others with. So I think that's one of the things. And as I commented on earlier, I've been thinking about this since, again, preparing for this podcast was, you know, maybe Shay would like to have more than just like the mentor-mentee thing that we do at conferences, which is very important, but a group of people who are more senior and are willing to be called upon. Sometimes it can be just somebody who's at a career 
decision point and wants to bounce ideas off of somebody, somebody who could be neutral to them. And maybe we have a group of people who agree to do that, who've been through things. None of our career trajectories that I know of have been straight or easy. And we can help people through that and, and help guide them to the next level. So just some thoughts that I have. You know, I would agree, but I also think, you know, part of this is going to be making it part of our culture. You know, the culture is more right now, see one, do one, teach one. And as opposed to how do we integrate people in into all of this? And, you know, Louise and I were laughing early on in the COVID epi- a pandemic, just saying, we actually know, we were like, oh, this is what's going to happen. And, you know, we could have really been very helpful, I think, to the Shea leadership, just, you know, having been in Toronto, we we kind of knew how some of the things would play out. So I think, you know, that that's one of the things we really have to change is just sort of say, it's okay not to know, and it's okay to reach out to people. And, you know, even on the board, sometimes we hear that they're rediscussing things that have been discussed in the past. And a lot of this is, it's important for them to move on and just get that historical perspective so they can move on. That's so interesting. My division chief always says there's nothing new under the sun, even with pandemics that uh, somebody at some point has experienced something before and can be of tremendous uh, help to others just starting out. So that actually reminds me of another line from Judy's article, which where she says, there is a saying, all good things must come to an end. In 2015, I ended up leaving the job that I loved. I found myself in a situation in which hospital leadership and I had developed different guiding principles. It was a difficult career moment. So Judy, first, if you can tell us what you mean by different guiding principles, and then I'd like to ask the group if they've had similar crossroad moments in their careers and what they ended up deciding to do and how that advice might benefit some others. Sure. Well, in 2014-2015 was the uh, West African Ebola um, outbreak. And I had been the hospital epi for my children's hospital at that point for about 11, 12 years. And I think if we all look back at that outbreak, all of us were all doing the same thing. We were leading preparedness efforts in our own hospitals so that we could quickly identify and isolate that person with Ebola if they happen to show up. So, you know, we're all working long hours, seven days a week, trying to come up with our preparedness plans, test those plans. But my hospital leadership prioritized the business side of the whole equation. And they saw it as a huge potential financial loss, looking at what was happening down in Dallas and in um, at Emory in Atlanta. And this was their sole focus, the financial piece. So you know, their priorities won over mine. And despite being the sole academic hospital in my state, we actually ended up coming off the list of not only Ebola treatment centers, but even in, we weren't even an Ebola assessment hospital. And um, it just didn't make sense to me. So I resigned. And <laughs> closing that door was a really scary moment in my career. I thought I was, for the lack of a better term, committing academic suicide at that moment, thinking, gosh, this is what I love. This is what I do. And I'm leaving this job. But, you know, closing that door led to so many new open doors. And now that I can look back 
it ended up being probably the best decision I've made so far in my career. So that's where you, I am now. You trusted your gut and you went for it and uh, no regrets. None. Fantastic. Any of the rest of you had similar crises moments or crossroads in your careers? And can you share those with us and how you navigated those? Dr. Denver, please go ahead. So I'll go ahead. I had, I would say, a crisis point in my career back in um, 2012 or so when I was removed as the hospital epidemiologist uh, for a variety of reasons, probably a lot of it politics. But that said, I mean, that happened and I had to really think about what I was going to do. And I loved hospital. I still love hospital epi, loved hospital epi. And I was very entrenched where I was at. I took some time to really think about this. And interesting that Judy talked about Ebola as her crossroads. That was when Ebola came along and preparedness in 2014, nobody was going to take it on. So I took it on. I was like, well, I've done viral hemorrhagic fever at Yale New Haven Hospital back in the 1990s. I've done SARS, that kind of stuff. So I took it on and um, out of that grew the possibility of another um, position and that didn't end up materializing. But I remember having a conversation with the person who was trying to create the position for me because he had also said, at the, I'm not sure why, you know, they didn't keep you on at your hospital role. I think you're terrific, et cetera. But I remember saying to him, you know, my goal is to be of value. And he said something to me that has really stayed with me. He said, you know, Louise, it's more important to be valued. And that really, really stuck with me and resonated and started to think about what was I going to do? Was I going to wait for the next crisis to pick up the pieces that nobody wanted to do? Or was I going to look for other things? And I kind of work with the motto now of everything I do, everything I have done is a step in the journey of life. And all that I experience is a gift and try to look at it as there's something, but behind us that I can use to gain growth. Their position opened up. I did go to the VA Connecticut healthcare system. I really realized that my place at Yale New Haven was so much tenuous at that point in time. And it was an opportunity to build a program. Um, and I thought, you know, what a great way to sort of, you know, sunset in my career, use that opportunity. And I, uh, then was pulled in to be essentially a group of people who were leading the sterilization disinfection process for 18 months. I came out of that and here we were in the pandemic. And as Trish said, you know, I rolled up my sleeves and I said, I'm the only one here in this room who's actually done this before um, and, you know, really guided it. And it was, it was a terrific kind of experience. Um, and I think this is where I try to look at this is everything. We all have crossroads and you have to just think about how you're going to look for that next opportunity. What might be, could be branching out as others on this group have done consulting, going to another institution, trying something different. I will say in this last year, I got to be chief of ID or acting chief of ID at the VA Connecticut healthcare system. And I often wondered if I shouldn't have gone on to be a chief of ID. And now I'm happy that I didn't. I got to try it and dip my toe in. <laughs> I realized it was not for me. So I, I Think of this, you know, never say never, but um, we do learn along the way. So that's my story. You know, I would say that if you haven't had one of those moments, you haven't done your job. I, I really think so. I think that um, 
just the nature of healthcare epi or stewardship is is that role where you're going to have these ethical, moral issues that come up. So I've had multiple in my careers where I really, I thought I was going to lose my job over one outbreak that someone heard about at a cocktail party and I got called about it by the press about it. And, you know, I, I had to make a decision right then or there what do I say? Because, you know, we always go through our communications people, but, you know, it was trying, they were trying to bury it. And it was something that didn't, it could not be buried because it had national implications. And so we all have those moments where we either do something like Judy did or, or maybe it's not quite as dramatic, but we think it could potentially happen. But we have to take a moral ground and we have to be the consciousness of the organization. So, you know, all I can say is that that we will have these moments and it, we will continue to have them. And if we don't, maybe we're not pushing, you know, the limits as much as we should be in this role. I think we all share examples of situations in our in our roles that call on us and, uh, and individually to exercise what we believe is our conscience, but more importantly, our knowledge and expertise in providing the best recommendation for the organization that we're serving. And paramount in that is ensuring the safety of our patients as well as of our healthcare workers. So I can share an example where. Uh, I experienced that difficulty in being able to present assessment, a risk assessment. And this was regarding the smallpox vaccine that was being promoted uh, by the federal government about 20 years ago for healthcare workers. And we, in our organization, were doing our own assessment. So I had developed a, a in collaboration with our infectious disease physicians on our medical staff, developed a consensus recommendation addressing the risks and benefits, but concluding that um, on balance, we did not recommend uh, adopting the smallpox vaccine for our, our healthcare workers or for our physicians and nurses and other clinical staff. Well, we had a individual who was a senior leader at our organization who felt very strongly that our clinic, we should be offering smallpox vaccine. And he happened to be also a chair of an important board committee. Um, and so this presented a difficult situation because um, there was a, a perceived conflict. I was asked to present at uh, the board subcommittee that this leader was the chairman of and uh, was a very uncomfortable situation where I was feeling pressured in changing my recommendation because of the pressure being brought to bear by this leadership group. Um, in the end, it worked out okay, but the points are that I felt I had to stand by my best recommendation and uh, really were grateful for the support across the Shea Network. And there are other situations like that, so I appreciate that comment that um, we, we all need to be the conscience of the role we serve and uh, separate from other passionate advocacy and uh, not be influenced unless there's a real, there's a compelling reason. 
I would like to ask a follow-up question, and maybe you um, you can all jump back in, which is that, do you think that these particular crises and challenges are different for us as women and that we may perceive them or confront them differently? And is there a component of imposter syndrome in that? Judy, would you like to jump in? Yeah, just just listening to all of my colleagues talk about their experiences. You know, it's really annoying because in these situations, I bet all of us were described similarly by people at our institutions. I've been called bossy. I've been called a bull in a china shop. Well, you know what? That's what you got to do when you're a leader in an outbreak or in an exposure. And, you know, if it was a man, it would probably be strong leader. And, um, you know, unfortunately, I think that that's something that isn't going to go and go away anytime soon, at least not in my career. I don't see it happening. But I think as we see more women in leadership positions, as we have seen, not only in Shea, but other organizations and across the country, and not just in medicine, not just in healthcare epi, that narrative will change. But I think this is one of the reasons why I see all of the women here on this podcast as mentors to me, because none of them were ever afraid or worried to be called the bull in the China shop, because that's just what, that's just who we have to be. I would echo that. Um, I've been called all those same things. And I remember retorting once, if I were a man, would you say the same thing about my managerial style? Um, interestingly enough, actually, um, women kind of said no, and men said, wow, that's actually a good question. We shouldn't necessarily make assumptions, but I think back to what we're talking about, and I think as we grow in our careers, and this is where having mentors or people you can reach out to and bounce off of crises you're dealing with is, I started to feel more confident that I could put my foot down. And I remember going through an investigation. I won't go through the details of it, but very intense where, like others here, I felt I may have to walk away from this job. Maybe I'd get fired, but I may need to walk away from it. And I said to the person, one of the investigators who was saying, well, you know, you did this and that and blah, 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 and the whole over the institution. I said, I see myself as the last line of defense for patient safety between those who are the big voice in the room who, for whatever reason, be it financial, clinical, or otherwise, want to go forward and push to do something that is unsafe. And that is our role. And I said, I can go home and live with myself at the end of the day. And that's always been somewhat my test. Do I feel that I did the best in my ability with the information I had at that time? Others may not agree. They might feel that maybe I was too conservative or something like that. But I think we each have to figure out for ourselves what is that line. And as others have said here, sometimes you will get pushed and you will realize that you have to walk away. And um, there is something else out there for you. It is scary at the moment. But you want to be able to look at yourself at the end of the day and said, I did everything I could to protect patients, might also be employees, but to protect, we have a role to protect the population in the facility where we work. That is sort of like our public health role. And so I think it's very important. We have nice terms for this now. We talk about implicit bias and the issues with microaggression, et cetera. Um, but I, I do think these issues are real. It's, and I don't think it's just women. I've seen my, co- you know, my colors who are uh, my colleagues who have different, different racial backgrounds have the same issues come forward. 
And I really do think we have to work on culture change. Um, and I'm worried, actually, looking at what's going on nationally, that we may see a step back. And so it's going to be important for us to redouble our efforts moving forward. But, um, you know, some of the language that we hear now is, is, derogatory in a lot of ways. And I don't know that that's good. And it's it's not going to be healthy in a professional environment where we exist. So, you know, we have all felt it and we've tried to build um, groups like Shea where we feel a little bit safe. But, you know, these are really big issues out there and they're growing. And you know, I think we have to really start thinking about how can we um, almost counter market some of these efforts. One of the themes I'm hearing is that at different moments, you all drew a lot from each other and your own, your shared experiences. And so another reason I think why this organization is so important to lots of people and especially the um, upcoming meeting where Again, we'll uh, we'll be open for hugs and and the like. Lots of glasses of wine. Yes. Okay. So now looking to the future, uh, Judy, you share this really great story, which I love hearing about um, this moment where you were uh, simultaneously planning for two public health crises that were crashing together in your city of Portland, and so these were a COVID surge in the fall of 2020, as well as the just devastating um, fires in Portland. And I remember you shared a story about evacuation guidelines and air quality guidelines while people were quarantining for COVID. And of course, this was before the vaccine. So all of that is to say, you know, what else should we be thinking about in terms of getting more skin in the game, tackling different types of public health crises? Dr. Siegel, maybe if we can uh, hear from you first as a public health official, what else besides respiratory viral pandemics and AMR outbreaks and such um, should we really try to get some skin in the game on? I think that the one of the most important lessons of the pandemic is understanding uh, transmission routes of pathogens. And we spent a lot of time debating transmission routes. I don't think the debate is quite as active now. I think that we understand much more. But this does apply to the whole concept of indoor air quality. And as uh, and, and hospital epidemiologists, healthcare epidemiologists, we do have a responsibility to establishing the best indoor air quality that we can in our facilities. And that involves being at the table when a new facility is built. That's the best opportunity, of course, but also helping facilities to see what they can do with what they have in terms of optimizing uh, their indoor air quality without necessarily spending millions and millions of dollars to put in a new system. And this certainly applies to long-term care, acute care, and to schools where our children are. Uh, and it's not just uh, infectious agents that affect our children's lives. There are pollutants and 
um, triggers of asthma and that sort of thing. And I think that our training and epidemiology and the way we look at our perspectives, the way we look at things can be very valuable in this when these decisions are made. And that is one very important lesson. I would like to say that one thing that really concerns me is if we look back historically when we had various uh, crises, public health crises, whether it's uh, tuberculosis or HIV, um, many resources were um, devoted to the uh, to solving that crisis. And then when it appeared that maybe, and this was certainly true for tuberculosis, maybe we had things kind of under control, so funding was cut. So we slid backwards and had a lot of catch-up to do. And I think that we don't want that to happen after this pandemic. And although this people will say, well, that would never happen because this pandemic was so uh, <clears throat> overwhelming, but it could happen. And I think we have to work really hard to make sure that it doesn't happen. That's right. Dr. Pearl, you dropped an amazing nugget in the chat earlier, which was, it is important to have a paradigm shift where healthcare facilities become thought of as part of the public health infrastructure. Is this something you're thinking about now with your new role at uh, UT Southwest? Yeah, no, absolutely. And what I what I was really thinking about is, you know, the challenges that we faced, and this builds on what Jane was just talking about, about how we have this episodic funding and we're not really thinking long-term. So the first thing I'd say is I think we have to switch our language a little bit. We have to start thinking about public health as biosecurity and, you know, whatever, so that it appeals to different groups. We're supposed to be relatively neutral in what we're doing, but we also have all learned in our careers that the way we talk to pediatricians is different from the way we talk to surgeons. And so we have to carry that on. So that's the first thing. And then the th second thing is when I looked at what happened and, you know, they had remarkable infrastructure in Europe where they knew exactly what was going on and their surveillance data was so much stronger, et cetera. And we had this very kind of patchwork system set up. And the expectation has been, you know, we have these standalone healthcare facilities and we aren't part of the public health infrastructure. And I think we can really play a role in changing how we think about it because we all knew that we were getting pretty good data from our hospitals. We were seeing a lot of the patients, we had information, but that expectation that we become part of this and that we can use these data responsibly, it has to be bi-directional, right? Wasn't there. And so I, I would love to see us really think about this in a different way so that, you know, we can really use this pandemic to rebuild our, our public health system. And anyway, so that's what I was thinking. Thank you. Finally, since we've invited you on as uh, mentors and peers, uh, would like to give you the platform to just uh, share your words of appreciation for each other, to congratulate Judy, and you know, just to gush for a little while before we conclude. Go ahead, Judy. Why don't you start? 
Okay. Well, first, I just, I'm so humbled at, that everyone here took the time to, to gather. Um, it's, it, this has been such an incredible session for all of us to be here. And I'm so grateful for all of you that you not only found the time to join here today, but also for all that you've done for women in Epi, for women in Shea, women in medicine, all of the above. So I'm going to take a moment to thank each of you individually, because I've been thinking a lot about each of you um, in preparation for this podcast. So I'm going to start with Jane, because Jane was my really my first senior mentor in infection prevention hospital Epi early in my career. And Jane, you basically taught me how to write a guideline. I had this crazy idea after getting all these phone calls from Ronald McDonald houses in Portland about managing their outbreaks and exposures. And I was like, why isn't there a national guideline? And it should look like the CF guideline because I love that guideline. I use it all the time. And so I looked and I saw that Jane, Dr. Jane Siegel was one of the co-authors and she was also a past HICPEC member and I used her HICPEC guidelines all the time. So I literally out of the blue emailed Jane and I called and left a voice, a voice message on her office phone and she emailed me back. That's how we met. And I said, I have this idea, but I don't know how to do it. And Jane, you were my shepherd throughout that whole process. And that really solidified my passion and my love for infection prevention. Um, Trish, when I think about you, I think that you are just one of the strongest and pragmatic women I have ever seen at a podium. And, you know, there are so many women in Epi that look up to you. And I'm sure that I'm not the only Shea member who has seen you as a distant mentor, even though we've never worked on a project together. So thanks for paving the way for so many women in our field. It really, you know, I mean, you are just a rock star. Louise, I remember the first year on when I served on the Shea board and you were there too. I think we may have been the only women on the board that year. And I literally would sit there and feel like my opinion probably didn't matter that much. And you are the person who made me realize that I was invited to that boardroom. I didn't just sneak in there. And you really gave me the courage to start talking. And now fast forward, you know, probably a decade now, some might say that I can't stop talking. So thanks for, me, thanks for giving me that courage. And then finally, you know, Reka, you're such a great friend and role model to me. And, you know, I see you as a hospital leader, a national leader, and as an incredible working mother. I know Reka's son. He is a trainee at my hospital. And, you know, so I, I know you from that lens as well. And, you know, I try so hard every day to follow in your footsteps. And um, I hope I'm doing a good job in that. And finally, um, you know, I just can't believe that I have this chance to thank you all at once. It's kind of crazy. So Priya, I also want to thank you for giving me this opportunity to bring us all together. It's been a hard few years, but you know, when I get together and, and think about and ponder my career and think about how all of you have been part of my successes, it's just, I don't even know, there's no words um, to express my great, my gratitude. Can I just say that we would not be where we are without people like you and Priya who are, you know, taking up the, you know, the battle flag, you know, I, I could not have done it without Reka, Louise or Jane. I mean, each of them supported me through tough times. I really could not have done it, but you know, for, for me, at least it's gives me immense pleasure 
to sort of see this next generation. And there's going to have to be another one after that, et cetera. You know, and that's, that's why we do it. And as I said, don't make me cry. And I echo what Trish says. And I also say, don't make me cry. And I think it's so interesting how people view us because Judy, I don't remember those interactions on the board, but I'm so glad I did. Um, But all of you, you know, have supported me and played a role in my career as well as so many other people who obviously are not on this podcast. So I think that's the thing is it takes a village. Nobody does this in a vacuum. And we want to help each other, support each other. And like Trish, I just feel, you know, so proud to see the next generation coming up, them being great sponsors and mentors to the generation after that, because um, this is what we need. And it's not only for Shea, but it's for our field. It's for the betterment of patient safety. It's, It's just to move everything forward. So thank you. I just wanted to add my comments. So, so Judy, you know, and Priya, but Judy particularly, I just so honor you. It took uh, courage to write the kind of um, outline that you did, you know, with all the the successes and the warts and, uh, and all the challenges. And I think there's a lot to take away from those experiences. We've, we've all shared some here. And I'm just going to say the one thing that I think we all need to keep in mind, actions speak louder than words. And I'm sort of getting my examples. People can say things to one another and including mentors and such, but the kind of actions we've talked about, like what I described, Trish and Louise, Louise's influence in, in being able to pave the way, that's really what we need to all be doing. And I know we all do that here, but to continue to, to um, offer those kinds of opportunities to folks that were, were coming along in their career. So look forward to doing that. Thank you. Great job, Priya. I would like to say that it probably is the most senior member of this group. It was really tough going, and I was pretty much uh, dependent on male mentors, which helped me a lot in my career, but only goes so far, uh, no matter how understanding they are and how supportive they are. And when I was coming up in healthcare epidemiology, I was given the chairmanship of the Infection Control Committee because no one else wanted it. And I was the young person. And I would say the anecdote that Judy gave, a very important part of that is for us to all recognize when somebody has an idea and wants to run with it and help them to see how they can do that. And that was the situation with Judy. We had this discussion at the pediatric special interest group. Oh yeah, that's a really important problem. And others are seeing this, but Judy really wanted to run with it. And I think it was it was a pleasure, of course, to do that. And we all need to recognize when we see someone who is ready to run with it. And certainly others, I take great pleasure in seeing them carry forth uh, the um, promoting the role of women. I do want to end with a little bit of a plug for long-term care, if that is okay. Because I think that long-term care is tends to be sidelined by a lot of organizations. And I found specifically during the pandemic, Shea provided tremendous tools uh, for acute care hospitals, but did not have the long-term care perspective 
And I would like to see that develop more because there is a huge, huge need for that, uh, especially in antimicrobial resistance. And I think it's really important for Shade to expand beyond the acute care hospital. And uh, I, I would encourage everyone uh, to do that. One other comment that I wanted to end on, um, I just think it was important. Um, I'd like to just express, you know, from the from the from my own personal plane, you know, gratitude that uh, for the career opportunities I've had and that have been largely related to, um, you know, not only your colleagues but also in my organization. I'm very grateful to have the opportunity to not only be able to have this fulfilling career in hospital epidemiology. But also the pathways to leadership and as, you know, as a physician executive. So I want to just not forget that there are pathways. We talked about cha- chairmanship and ID that Jean, uh, Jane referred to and Trish. Um, I think there's pathways to leadership. There's really you know, the barriers are whatever barriers were perceived. I think there's lots of opportunities for people who are, who are really interested and open. Uh, so I'd just like to put a plug for that. Well, on that note, I would like to take an opportunity to sincerely thank you all for your valuable time today. And of course, to Judy for her just beautiful contribution to ASHI. Uh, Please do read that when you have a chance. And you have our word that ASHI will continue to provide a platform for your voices Um, for women's issues, particularly as they pertain to hospital epi and stewardship and public health. And uh, just says, thank you from the bottom of our heart to this beautiful group of women. Um, Ashi is accepting nominations for future Women in Epi, which I'm thinking now will have to rebrand as Women in Ashi. And uh, looking forward to seeing you all, um, whoever's coming to Shea Spring. Again, that's in Seattle, Washington, April 11th through the 14th, 2023.